we as marketers have got to be able to speak the language of the boardroom to be able to be taken seriously. And the language of the boardroom is the language of finance. Learn modern marketing that you can use to grow your business in today's competitive landscape. This is Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. Welcome to Digital Marketing Masters. I'm your host, Matt Rouse, and today my guest is Guy Ranasena. I think I got that pretty close this time. How you doing, Guy? It's G, actually, Matt, but no worries. <laughs> oh, G. Ah, I mixed it up again. <laughs> Sorry, G. <laughs> no worries. No worries. Let me tell you, Matt, I've been called far worse. <laughs> All right. Well, G, let me get it right this time. For the past 14 years, G has been the CEO of Kexino, an award-winning marketing agency specializing in helping startups and small businesses around the world deploy next-generation marketing within and across their organizations. A fellow of the Chartered Institute of Marketing, G is also a visiting professor at a well-known European business school, lecturing to final-year MBA students on marketing and behavioral economics. Originally from London, Today, G lives with his family in Strasbourg, France. So when we talked before I had you on the show, you discussed the, the, the topic being marketing isn't just marketing anymore. And I wanted to ask you what you mean by that. No, absolutely. I think we have to sort of go back, really. And if we draw a line in the sand for what marketing was pre-COVID to what marketing could be post-COVID, we're able to sort of disseminate everything. I think if you go back certainly a few years, but you know, maybe up to sort of five, six, seven years ago, marketing has had the creativity knocked out of it. and that creativity as an approach to problem solving, which clearly marketing is concerned with, I think is deployed far too narrowly than it needs to be. And what happens is that currently decisions, marketing decisions are are being taken by sequential rational logic, by people who are looking at business owners who are looking at something from a, a purely ROI-based position rather than something which is a little bit more psycho psychology-driven or emotional-driven. So what happens is these decisions get taken on the basis of rational sequential logic. And then at the last moment, they call in the, the marketers, the creatives to make things look nice based upon a framework which they haven't had input in on their design. And so I think it's partly the, the, the fault of the marketing industry that got us here because I think there's been a growth in the, in the natural tendency to leap to communications-based solutions when looking to address business problems. So I think today's marketing gives us the opportunity, at least gives us the opportunity to reform marketing by getting people to accept that value is subjective, is context dependent and meaning dependent. And that value is formed in the mind of the customer. You know, it's produced by the singer as much as it's produced by the song. And I think over the years, marketers have been told time and time again that we're a cost and we've come to believe it. And the reason why Today's marketing is so jam-packed full of programmatic advertising or boring advertising or banal social media posts or whatever is because we as marketers are too desperate to justify our existence. And I think, market, well, certainly marketing isn't a cost, right? I mean, it's an inherent part of the value creation process. You know, if you don't know a product exists, then you won't want it. So what's the point 
of making something really cool if people have never heard of it and don't know how to want it. And that's really where marketing comes in, yeah? I mean, and this, this is the real opportunity. You know, if, if, you, if you look at it from a 36,000 feet view, our job is growth, right? That's the job. So marketing is not just this small silo that we've been, we've painted ourselves into a corner with, but marketing is sales, marketing is operations, marketing is customer support, marketing is finance. And I think it's time for all of us to rally around that mental model. And I think one of the implications of this shift is that we as marketers have got to be able to speak the language of the boardroom to be able to be taken seriously. And the language of the boardroom is the language of finance, right? You know, we need to abandon all this marketing geek speak, all the jargon that we love and we understand amongst ourselves, and really start to communicate the way that the business expects us to. You know, of course, financial rigor and an obsessive commitment to marketing return on investment is foundational to marketing performance. But if we as marketers aren't spending time with the finance people, you know, aligning what our formula for ROI should look like and how we want to measure that and how we want to use that to improve the health of our business. And I think that's something that we should be doing right now. And I think the people who do do that, the marketers who can redefine this purpose and who are willing to rewrite the rules of engagement will be the ones who would be best placed to flourish and capture that new loyalty as as business finds its its new niche, its new position within a post-COVID position. There's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) (laughs) But I think one thing that I've definitely seen over the years, especially the last 10 years or so, has been this sort of, I don't know if it's necessarily coming from the boardroom, but there's been this sort of focus on proof. I need instantaneous material number proof that what you're doing has some effect, right? And it's difficult to say the creativity I had in this process is what produced this result. Whereas you can say, this many visitors saw this post or this many people engaged with this thing or, you know, this drove X traffic, which drove this much conversion, which drove this much profit in kind of a direct marketing sense is is very easy to prove. But it's also not giving people the kind of rewards that, you know, a very large creative effort can give. No, I I think you're absolutely right. I think. You know, marketing is one of those complex fields of human activity where efficiency and effectiveness are poorly correlated. I mean, there there are others, like, I mean, like in military strategy, for instance. Military strategy cannot be rational, right? Because if your enemy can work out what you're going to do in advance, then the chances of your military campaign succeeding are greatly diminished, right? And I think it's not that businesses think creative marketing doesn't work. I think it's that they simply don't feel comfortable with the fact that it does. Let me explain. It messes with the map of the world they hold in their heads. They would rather pretend that their success is attributable to efficiencies, economies of scale, cost cutting, or any other MBA guff, rather than think that it may be due to creative factors, emotional resonance, psychological factors, right? It's like placebos, right? 
Now, the medical profession has known for years about the power of placebos, right? There's a ton of research that shows that placebos really work. But for some people, the fact that I can give you a sugar pill to get rid of your headache somehow makes it look like I'm cheating, right? right. So remember, every standard theory economic model assumes perfect information and perfect trust. And our efficiency optimization models set in an imaginary world where marketing is entirely unnecessary. Okay? Economists don't make the difference between someone buying 10 things once and someone buying one thing 10 times, which is clearly ridiculous, right? So if you're chasing effectiveness, you're about maximizing the outcome to a particular marketing tactic or combination of, 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 of tactics. It's about achieving the biggest success you can right? While efficiency-driven businesses, on the other hand, are not looking to get the best result from their effort. They're looking to get the most positive result from the least amount of effort or investment, which is a very different thing. Since efficiency is a ratio between input and output, maximizing efficiency is about reducing input, which is a bit like how the marketing, the, the finance department sees the marketing department, right? If I spend $1 on marketing and get $10 in sales... That's efficient, right? But if I sp- if I spent three dollars to get the same ten dollar return today, but it grew to fifty dollars next week and two hundred and fifty dollars next month, what's what's the better plan? So organisations are looking for efficient marketing, and so tend to concentrate on quick and easy wins. The you know the low hanging fruit. They're about cutting budgets to the bone and focusing on smaller activities. Yes, these activities are efficient in that they cost tiny amounts of money but they only ever generate modest results. You're never going to be able to achieve the maximum outcome possible from whatever marketing initiative you're doing. So cutting budget in both effort terms and monetary terms to maximize efficiency actually has a reverse effect on the business. Over the longer term, it means less growth and less market share, right? So if instead you focus on the effectiveness on your marketing, you're not just maximizing revenue and profits in the short term, but you're building brand awareness, you're building visibility and reach and engagement and all that other good stuff, which reduces the cost of new customer acquisition. It reduces pricing sensitivity, increases customer loyalty, strengthens your position against the competition and all the rest of it. It's funny that we're still having this, these conversations. You would think that, you know, with, with Apple worth more than $2 trillion, the case for marketing creativity would be a done and dusted subject. Yet, as marketers, we're having to continue to argue our case every single time. Yeah, it seems uh, that it's not even just for larger companies either. The same thing happens in small businesses all the time. I see it all the time. A good example that kind of illustrates that is if you have an ad campaign for a small business, which is, is, is not very complicated, right? On Let's say the platform's Facebook. There are ads you use that are intentionally creative, non-salesy, you know, they're they're out there to build awareness and trust. And then there's ads that are conversion ads, which are ads that you are trying to use to get people to go purchase something. These are two different things. Absolutely. But you hand that ad campaign over to the business owner and they look at the ads that are made for reach that don't have sales and they say, well, we spent $100 on this ad this week and we didn't get any sales from it, so we should turn that off. 
not understanding that that's what creates the audience for the conversions in the first place. That's what makes the conversions cheaper. And then (laughs) it ends up costing them twice as much to sell anything. And then they say Facebook ads doesn't work. Yeah, it's it's a flywheel effect, and, and you're absolutely absolutely right, Matt. I mean, there's 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 two totally different positions. There's a brand building position, and there's a sales activation position. And the you know one one is long term, and one is you know more short term. But they, they they're both interrelated. I mean, you know, Les Burnett and Peter Field have done lots of work on this, and there's the you know they've they've written books on this sort of stuff. If all you're doing is sales activation stuff. Right. Okay. You spend a bunch on Facebook ads, you get a result. And then as soon as you turn the tap off, <laughs> the, you know, the Facebook ads stop and the results stop. Right. And if you're not doing any of the brand building stuff, what happens is you start again from zero each time. So you turn the tap on, you go up to X amount of sales, X amount of conversions, turn to Facebook or whatever, not singling out Facebook, right? You you know, you turn that tap off and you're back again to zero. While if you concurrently run brand building messaging, advertising, you know, whatever that campaign, long-term campaign looks like, once you turn the Facebook off for the first time, when you turn it back on, you're no longer starting from zero. You're starting from maybe one or two. And over time, that baseline is, is growing up each time. So it's a flywheel effect. You know, at, at, at the end, you're, you're actually reaching almost like a critical mass where both of them are reacting off each other. And that's, that's how great brands are built. There's also an interesting thing, you know, kind of, a, you know, like you mentioned at the start there, that activation and acquisition are not the same thing, right? So you want to be you know, introducing people. And there's there's a formula in the product marketing space that I think kind of fits here. And I don't know if, if this is something similar to what you've used, but we use we use kind of a four-step process, which is if we're trying to sell something to someone who has a problem, then we want to make sure that they're aware of the problem, that they're aware that there's a solution. And then we want to make them aware of our solution. And then we want to try and sell them our solution. Is We don't just try and sell them our solution to their problem as step one, right? And so that's kind of like a four-step process to getting someone to buy something. And we've tested it over and over. And it using the four-step process wins every time. No, absolutely. I mean, it's education and awareness, you know, Right at the beginning, because, you know, at the end of the day, that's what they're buying. What they're buying is not your product or service. They're buying a solution to their problem, right? But sometimes you need to help them articulate what that problem is in a better way. And that's when you get into the, you know, unless you're very, unless you're not careful, what what happens very often is that you're getting clients who come to you who are self-diagnosing. They're they're coming to you and say, I need X because they've self-diagnosed they think they know what the problem is, but maybe they, maybe they don't know what the problem is. Quite often they don't know the problem is, especially if they they don't have any experience or education in marketing. And so part of our job as marketers is to actually, you know, get past that first veneer, that first layer and actually find out, okay, what is the business problem? Where are you hurting right now? And let's have a look at that from a business perspective and then look at overlaying how that how you know various marketing tactical positions can can affect that, 
Because otherwise, you're like I said, you're self-diagnosing. You know, if I've got a pain in my chest, I don't go to the doctor and say, you know, give me heart medication, right? Because <laughs> I'm not a doctor, right? I tell the doctor I've got a pain in my chest, and then the doctor diagnoses, and yeah, it may be angina. Or it may be because I had a really spicy burrito last night, right? And I've got gas. But it's up to the doctor. It's, you know, when you go to a mechanic, it's the same thing, right? So it, it's, I think it's allowing the, you know, the agency to diagnose what that problem is, articulate it in a way that makes sense for you as a business owner, give you the information necessary to make an informed decision. Right. And that's whether, whether you're selling the services to the client or whether you're selling the client services to the end customer. It's the same thing. I find this happens a lot in the business to business space where they sort of have like not necessarily hiring people that are in the specifically in the marketing field. They kind of take people who are, you know, I, I like to call them marketing engineers. They are in an engineering company or an engineering business of some kind, right? Like a manufacturer or something. And what they know is customers often have problem X. We have solution Y that solves that problem. So all I have to do is say, do you have problem X? Here's solution Y. And they think the job is over. No, absolutely. They're, look, they're looking at it from a procurement perspective, right? They're looking if this, then that, right? It's, it's, it's very linear, and it totally eliminates the psychological component from the buying decision, and which is just as valid as it is B2B as it is B2C, only that in B2B, there's usually more than one decision maker. But otherwise, you know, as, as buyers, we're still buying in the same way. We're buying emotionally and then post-rationalizing logically, right? That, that, that's the way we've always done it, right? You know, if you, 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 you go and you go to the store and you see a really, really gorgeous pair of shoes in the store and you fall in love with these shoes, but they cost an absolute fortune. I mean, crazy, crazy money, right? Um, so what happens? You, you fall in love with them, you buy them. And what do you do? Afterwards, you tell yourself, well, you know, the design is so classic, you know, it's never going to go out of style, you know, feel this leather, it's so soft, I'm going to be able to wear it with so many different outfits, you know, you know, the, all the rest of it, you post-rationalize afterwards. So great marketing plays on the heart, aiming to solicit an emotion, right? The heart wants what the heart wants. So the, the problem is by getting, what, 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 did, what did you call them? These marketing engineers. Marketing engineers. It was a great term. I'll have to steal that from you. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think, you know, marketing is ideologically disliked in the higher echelons of business, right? They have a CEOs, CFOs have an inherent distrust in marketing because it goes against this sequential rational thought process I was talking about that, you know, bean counters, accountant people, economist type people love. But human beings aren't machines, Right? They always think or do something in the same way. They don't always behave logically or rationally, which means effective marketing involves out-of-the-box thinking, and it involves creative experimentation, which is all stuff that finance people see as superficial and irrational and scares most of them to death. Right. Which is why we have the current situation where marketing tactics are driven by efficiency nerds. You know, They sign up to a bunch of MarTech services, slap together some communication based on a Canva template or an unsplash image that we've all seen a gazillion times before, 
vomit out 50 different versions of the, of the communication and manage, measure the one that generates the most return. But, you know, that's efficient, but is it effective? Does it actually shift product to an appreciably greater extent to whatever the business was already doing? Now, just to be clear, I'm not having a proper Canva or Unsplash. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, right? I mean, these tools have made it easier for non-creatives to put together something that looks, you know, half decent. And these companies should be applauded for that. What I'm saying is that, you know, buying a set of expensive Sabatier kitchen knives doesn't make me Gordon Ramsay. In North America, yelling at people makes you Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then on like British TV, he's like super nice. <laughs> Coloring the air blue makes you Gordon Ramsay, yeah? That's right. And, you know, the other thing is by chasing these e efficiency metrics matches, businesses end up looking and saying the same thing. There's no differentiation anymore, right? You know, you, if you look at most of the marketing you see today, obviously not the stuff that you guys do and not the stuff that we, that we do, right? But you look at the majority of marketing you see today, right? Ten will get you five. If you covered up the logo, the exact same piece of marketing could be used by pretty much anyone in that industry space. And that's a problem. Yeah, we used to, uh, we used to do this thing. It's, this is simple, actually. For anybody listening, you know, you're in your car, you're at work, whatever you're doing. Next time that you're on the internet, look at your company's website and any time that it says your industry name or your company name, replace it with tire company. And if it sounds like a good tire company, there's something really wrong with your website. You have no differentiating factor whatsoever. And the weird part is you can do this with like 90% of websites and it works. Everyone wants to be noticed, but nobody wants to stand out. That's right. You know? And this, this is where we've we've got to the, this metrics-based efficiency-driven marketing, uh, pursuing these things above all else. We've exorcised the creativity out of the equation. But instead of doing the basics of marketing, you know, customer research, segmentation, positioning, messaging, you know, all that good stuff, right? We've come to the conclusion that bad marketing that's more targeted works better than great marketing that's spread wider, which is why marketers resort to things like tracking cookies and remarketing tags and all that other stuff, right? They're looking at getting the pizza delivered as fast as possible without realizing that it's not cooked properly and it's got the wrong toppings on it. <laughs> you know, there's an interesting thing along those lines is we had a client recently that actually is, is just signed up with us again to handle advertising for them. But what happened was... They decided to bring it in-house, hire a person in-house, do it themselves, took over what we had built. And then over a period of time, it just slowly degraded, right? It just kind of got worse. And what had happened was they're, they're doing exactly what you're talking about, right? They're doing the, the marketing engineer thing. The person in-house is looking at it saying, this one's not selling, so we're going to stop these ones and then we'll create some more and see how they do. Not thinking about what is the effect of brand building? How is this building trust or authority or any of those things? And then they moved to an agency who made it worse. And then they moved to another agency who also made it worse. And so then they're coming back to us again. And when I look at what's remaining compared to what we had given them in the first place, what's missing is anything that didn't have a conversion on it, right? So they've just gone that whole direct marketing, if the math doesn't show that this has an immediate sale effect, 
They just stop doing it. And the problem is nobody's digging deeper. And with the marketing tech tools that are out there now, you can dig deeper and you can find those correlations if you really have to. Right. But stuff like brand lift and things like that, they're not really that measurable. And I think, yeah, I absolutely agree with you, but I think it's, 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 it's worse than that. <laughs> I don't want to be the doom and gloom merchant here, but I think it's worse than that because firstly, yeah, I mean, MarTech is great. You know, data driven marketing is great if you're measuring the right data, but most people aren't. And if you have clean data to work with. As obviously, yeah, garbage in, garbage out, right? So, you, uh, yeah, you absolutely, you, you need to know what you're doing. And most people don't. They figure if they get a subscription with, you know, insert MarTech flavor of the month in here, then all of a sudden their marketing problems have gone. And I think it's also indicative of the way that marketing is structured from an ROI perspective. You know, why, why is the average tenure of a CEO something like 18 months, 24 months now? Because they're, they're pressured to create a tangible lift, a tangible return on investment in an unreasonable space of time. And I, th I think it's also indicative of the way that companies are run in terms of their only the marketing planning is never, you know, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, certainly not anything longer. Everything needs to revolve around a calendar quarter for a shareholder report. So anything long-term strategic never gets implemented because the marketing person who's in the place at the time has long gone before that can ever play out. There's an interesting thing about the long-term thinking. And most small businesses or are, are, are even medium-sized businesses are not really known for their long-term thinking, right? I'll give you an example from our company. So... When we started the podcast originally, which was over three years ago now, we kind of started doing it. I wasn't really happy with the results. And I was like, if I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this for the next, you know, at least two or three years, uh, I better get it done right the first time. Right. So we made some changes, got an editor, you know, we got all kinds of stuff, got Squadcast like we're using right now. Shout out to Squadcast because I like their software. But yeah, it does our recording. Sounds good. People could listen to it. There's all these problems that we overcame to say this is going to be at least a 24 month project before we care if there's a result. Right. Like, I don't care if we make a single sale for our company because of the podcast in the next 24 months, because that's how long it's going to take before I think this is really going to have any noticeable effect. Now, there was some things, some improvement in some sales and other stuff because of it. But it wasn't like I need to have sales next quarter because I started a podcast, which is why so many podcasts are gone in the first 90 days. Sure, because, yeah, because they're looking for a knee-jerk reaction, a knee-jerk uplift. They're looking for this hockey stick graph, which doesn't happen in real life. I mean, you know, in, in what area of life or business do you get that, that, that sort of upturn? You know, un, unless it's absolute blind luck, it doesn't happen. You know, it's, it's by showing up. Every day, regularly, you know, it's, it's just like social or SEO or anything else, right? You, you have to be there each day chipping away and, and eventually you knock through that latency and you, you actually get some, some purchase. But now don't get me wrong. I totally empathize with a smaller business owner or certainly a startup. I mean, actually a startup is a different, different animal totally, right? A startup is on fast forward, you know, 24 seven, but from a, from a small to medium sized company, 
a small to medium-sized business, you know, thinking that far ahead is a little bit risky because they need to think about the next, you know, six, 12 months. But being honest with your marketing services provider about what those plans are with the business allows the agency to propose a sustainable solution for the business at that time. And by sustainable, I don't just mean financially sustainable, but I mean, you know, from an applications perspective, sustainable. But, you you know, you'll have too many businesses, you know, give you the, you know, you, you, it's like you're playing, playing a shell game with them, right? They, they don't want to open up too much about what they are, certainly what their financials are like, but what those short-term business goals are. And I, I, I haven't been able to work out why, because, you know, we're all on the same side here. And, you know, for a marketing services provider to do a good job, they need to know stuff. And, you know, if there's NDAs and stuff to be signed, then so be it. But, you know, we need to have a, a pretty fundamental handle of the business to be able to accurately and efficiently propose the best tactical plan that makes sense for that particular business at that particular time. Right. There's a interesting thing with marketing agencies now, and I'm talking generally about smaller, you know, marketing agencies, not like these large, you know, ad buying agencies. But you get this period of time where you have to have a result in a very short period of time or else they're not going to go with you for a long term plan. Right. So you also you have to have this sort of this almost like two faced viewpoint where you're like, how am I going to bang out some changes that are going to have an immediate impact on revenue? Right. And then but I also need to come up with a plan and start squeezing some money out of that immediate budget to build some long term gain because the short term plan only ever works in the short term and then it burns out. Right. Once you once you run out of low hanging fruit. Then it's over and they just go to another agency and they look for more low hanging fruit. Sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's not sustainable, is it? That, you know, I mean, sure. E even if you can make a, a, tan a tangible difference in a very short space of time, you know, it's just like investments, right? You know, past performance is no indication of future results, right? And you very quickly exhaust, like you say, you very quickly exhaust that low hanging fruit. And I understand the pressures that a, a small business is under because you know, especially from a marketing agency perspective, there are there is a lot of, let's call it misinformation and disinformation being spread by certain people who call themselves marketers or marketing agencies, right? So it's difficult to filter out the snake oil salesman salespeople, I get. But it does a disservice to the to the relationship that you're trying to build with the marketing services provider. Because I mean, as you know, to, to do our best work, there's a sometimes pretty lengthy onboarding process to get up to speed with the company, the culture, the, you know, the existing collateral they have, any existing messaging, what their branding is, what their messaging is, the, you know, the, the narrative, the why, all of that sort of stuff before you can do anything. And there's a significant investment on the agency's side to actually do that. You know, for some of our larger clients, that, that could be like six, eight weeks to get up to speed. Okay, we're never going to be as good knowing their product services company as they are, but we you know we need to be able to talk a good talk. Otherwise the whole thing comes across as as false and inauthentic, right? And you you can't do your best work unless you can be emotionally involved in the product or service that you're that you're selling. Otherwise, you know, you might as well work in a bank or something, right? I mean there's no why are we doing this, right? 
Right. And so I, I, it puts, you know, it puts unnecessary, uh, unacceptable, I think, pressure on your agency right from the get-go. And I th- it doesn't really say much for how symbiotic that relationship is going to be moving forward. Yeah, we have, you know, clients that we've worked with for, you know, more than a dozen years. And it allows us to do, you know, those brand building things that that really make a difference, even for small businesses. Right. And uh, and sometimes especially for smaller businesses. But, you know, you said something briefly that I actually heard a guy on the CBC radio because I'm in Canada uh, is a climate scientist talking about the problems that they had in Canada with the big heat wave that they had recently. And what had happened was the search and rescue, like fire department and stuff, the medical response teams and all that, their emergency capacity is based on the highest historical record, right? So they're based on in 1937, I think it was, there was, there was, you know, something where it was like 44 degrees or something Celsius. And so they're like, okay, if, if it gets to be 44 again, we've got enough medical services and enough fire crews that we could probably, you know, handle this. And then it came out and it was almost 50 degrees Celsius. And like the town of Lytton, Lytton, BC, like burned to the ground. And there's like five times as many forest fires. They had a 400% increase in premature deaths in British Columbia. Like it's just insane because they couldn't handle it. And the reason they couldn't handle it is because everything that they had was based on the historical record, not looking at projections of what it's going to be like, right? And if your company is planning your marketing and sales around your historical record, I mean, yeah, you want that as input, but it's not going to help you fight against upcoming competitors that you haven't heard of yet it, un, unless you're planning for that, right? It's, it's, there's all these things that can happen that are just out of the scope of history, especially now. Absolutely, yeah. No, I, I think you're so right. I mean, you know, in terms of that, what you mentioned about upcoming competitors, I mean, you know, just, just look at Sony. Look, look, at, look at Sony in the, in the late 90s, right? Sony owned the personal music player space, right? There was the Sony Walkman and that was it. Everybody aspired to getting a Sony Walkman. They, 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 they own that space, right? And Sony thought that the competitors to their Walkman were going to be audio companies like Sony or, you know, companies like Panasonic or Akai, Iowa, Technics, whoever, right? But what happened instead? A computer company came along, <laughs> right? So, you know, 2001, Apple launched the iPod and within two years, they pretty much killed off the sales of the Walkman. While Sony was looking at companies that looked like Sony, they didn't look for companies that didn't look like Sony. And so they were caught off guard. And there's plenty of disruptive innovation theory, you know, from Clayton Christensen, whereas, you know, the the innovation doesn't often come from the places where you're expected to. And uh, you look at the Fortune 500, you know, you look at, you know, who, who would have thought companies like Tesla could have a market capitalization more than the next five car manufacturers combined? Or if you look at how Airbnb disrupted businesses like secondary brands, the dissemination brands of Hilton and Marriott and all these, you know, Doubletree and all these sort of stuff, right? How they've disseminated those sorts of things. Or even Uber, how, how, it's, how it's disrupted the conventional taxi market, right? 
Damn it. That one was, they had it coming. Man, taxis were <laughs> terrible before Uber came along. What is Uber actually offering? You know, I mean, the, the, what, what they spotted was that the anxiety of ordering a cab, I mean, not if you're hailing a cab in the street, but if you're phoning up and ordering a cab, is that you've no idea how far that cab is going to be. So you don't know if you're going to be late for your appointment, your flight, your whatever. So the genius of Uber is the map. Just by showing the map, you know how far away your Uber driver is going to is, is from where you are. So that anxiety is immediately taken away. So in return, you know, you've obviously you've got this surge pricing and all the rest of it and the way they treat their drivers, whatever side of the fence that you want to sit on, that that's that's you know a secondary conversation. But the fact is they looked at what the anxiety was and it wasn't the price or it wasn't the availability. It was the uncertainty, and they removed that from the equation. And you didn't know what you were going to get when it showed up. <laughs> As well, yeah. <laughs> and let's face it, I mean, cabs for the most, like even the nicer of cabs were generally not very nice. But suddenly somebody's showing up to pick you up in their Cadillac, and it still costs the same amount of money, if not cheaper. And it's faster. I mean, it's just, it's amazing how that service turned and the taxi companies they could have done it they could have like there was there was nothing stopping them from doing it there's nothing from them to say let's all get together pool our money build an app clean up our cabs be nice to people right because there's the rating system on uber and lyft right so your driver has to do everything they can to make it nice because they don't want to get a bad rating and like the whole system was ready for upheaval, right? It's not like someone like Kodak where they're just addicted to their 90% profit margin on film and, you know, they don't pump money into digital even though they invented the digital camera. Well, I was, I was about to say, you know, I mean, they, they, they kept a lid on the digital camera because they thought the future was in their film business. They didn't want to cannibalize their cash cow. But what they didn't realize is that if they didn't cannibalize it, somebody else would. And, you know, the... The robust companies today are the ones who aren't afraid of cannibalizing, you know, their core product line in favor of something else. That's right. I heard, I don't know who said it now. I wish I could remember. They said you should be working to try and put yourself out of business. Yes. Yes. I've heard that quote as well. I don't, I don't know who it is. <laughs> they say that you're, the, that you're trying to reinvent your company is basically how you're putting yourself out of business or else somebody else is going to. But another thing that I heard that it was interesting was that apparently we're at some kind of all-time low in research and development dollars spent by companies. And and I don't know if that's compared to revenue or not, but you see a lot of companies trying to kind of relearn how to innovate, right? Like they're like, how can I bring someone in and redevelop my space so that people can can get together and be more innovative, which I think is a poor choice of how to do it or they're bringing in these innovation facilitators and stuff like that and i don't think the innovation comes from you know sticking a foosball table and a couple couches in your office and bringing in somebody in a in a in jeans and a suit jacket right i think innovation comes from trust and creativity and and giving your people the ability to do creative work and not beating them down with the results from bean counting. Well, you know, it's not something you can turn on and off. It comes when it comes. It's a creative process. 
It's a creative trait, which is funny because, you know, they don't teach you creativity in business school, which is crazy because, you know, you ask any employer, any HR department, you know, one of the biggest characteristics they want to see in new recruits is creativity. So I'm, I'm not quite sure how those two things equate. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's surrounding yourself with the right people. It's giving your team the breathing room to go off and do projects which may or may not pan out. It's, it's certainly having good relationships with customers, but not necessarily being customer centric. And there's a lot of talk around customer centricity, especially at the moment. But I think, you know, listening to customers too closely doesn't actually get you very far because customers generally don't know what they want. And then they post-rationalize with an excuse that actually sounds quite plausible for the time. You know, I mean, I think it was Henry Ford who said, you know, if, if we asked our customers, they would have said they wanted a faster horse, right? So it needs to be factored in to that innovation process, but not so blinded that you can't make those jumps either from a technological perspective or a behavioral perspective on the customer side to make things stick. I mean, you know, you, you look at how we've changed work in the last... 15, 18 months, right? If it was two years ago and you had a big client presentation on the other side of the country and somebody in your team said, you know what, instead of jumping on a plane to give the presentation, let's do it on Zoom. Everybody would have looked at them like they were mad, <laughs> right? right? Whereas today, the mad people were the ones getting on planes. So it's funny, you know, because in the digital space, like in my company, I haven't even seen my business partner in person for more than two years, right? Since pre-COVID, right? Because we live in different countries. And we used to live in the same city, right? We just, you know, moved around, did some stuff, whatever, right? But we work together all the time. We've been remotely running our company for like five years. And, you know, we could tell this is the future of work, right? Not for everybody, but for some companies, it's the future of work and we're already doing it. And then everybody's going, oh, my God, I got a I got I'm, I'm video conferencing from my house. And I'm like, well, we've been doing this for half a decade. Right. And a lot of times people just don't they think that what's happening now is something that's coming in the future. And what they need to do is take the time to figure out what's actually happening now and then try and look what's actually coming in the future. Right. Like they're a couple of years behind. There's a lag well, I think there's a number of thoughts on that. I mean, num number one, I'm, I'm right with you on the remote working thing, right? I mean, we're, we're 19 people in nine countries. We've been remote working since 2008, since we were founded, right? I like to say that we were working from home before it was fashionable, <laughs> right? It's the only way we've ever worked. I haven't met in person, face-to-face, -face, probably 50%, maybe more of the team ever. Ever. But I think what drives change is not the technology and looking at how to implement the technology because, you know, like, like you say, you know, something like video conferencing, there's nothing new about it, right? I mean, okay, there's been a few little bells and whistles with Zoom over the last, you know, few years, but, you know, Skype came out in 2001, for goodness sake, right? So th there's nothing new about technology. What's happened is two things. Firstly, we've been forced to rethink how we do stuff because of restrictions imposed upon us, right? If companies wanted to work in a hybrid model, have their employees work from home for X amount of days per week, they could have done it 20 years ago, certainly 10 years ago, but they didn't, right? Now that they were forced to, they found that, you know what? 
okay, it might be a bit rough around the edges and maybe it didn't go all according to plan. We had to learn on the job. But actually, we got to the point where it kind of sort of works and we've got happier employees. We've got greater productivity. We've got, you know, all of these great benefits and it all works. So I I think what happens is the society doesn't adopt new technologies until they adopt new behaviors. And what's driven this is, is a behavioral aspect, not technology, because none of the stuff that we're talking about now is new, right? Video conferencing, old as the hills, right? What's very interesting to me, and maybe you've seen it too, is when we're scheduling client calls, especially new client calls, so it's like the first exploratory call that we're having with a client. And, you know, most of our clients are in the US for some reason, even though we're based in Europe. I don't know why, Matt. I'm, I'm, you know, this internet stuff seems to work. I don't know. Um, Whereas a couple of years ago, I'd send an invitation or, you know, uh, one of of my colleagues would send out an invitation and say, okay, you know, we can either give us your phone number or um, we can organize it by Zoom or Hangouts or WebEx or, you know, whatever, whatever video conferencing application was, was flavor of the month at the time. Two years ago, 80, 90% of people would have gone phone. Whereas today, we're finding 80, 90% of, you know, these are new businesses that we've never spoken with. And it's just that first exploratory call. They're choosing video conferencing. Isn't that funny? It is. And I found, I found the same thing, which I really like because I was never a huge fan of, of the phone, mostly because of. You know, once everything went cell phone, there's always connectivity problems and somebody can't hear you or they drive through a tunnel or they're in an elevator or whatever the problem is. Video conferencing just seems more reliable to me. And I mean, I'm in rural Nova Scotia. I don't have the best Internet, but it's still more reliable than the phone is. So I found that not only is it a reliability thing, but it's also that, you know, sort of a personalization. You can see people and you can talk to each other. Like if I put on my camera, we could be like, hey. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's also an excuse that can't be used anymore, right? I mean, if you were going to meet someone in person and, you know, you were late or whatever else, you could say, okay, there was something wrong with the trains or the plane was cancelled or or whatever else or, you know, with the phone, I couldn't get a signal, this, that and the other. But with Zoom or any of the video conferencing applications, the tolerance of inexperience with the application is virtually zero. You know, apart from forgetting to unmute your mic or something in a, in a Zoom conference, but otherwise I don't think anybody's got time for all that nonsense anymore. The, the, the expectation is there. We've all become Zoom gurus overnight, which is quite unusual, I think. I mean, it used to be, well, and, and I say used to be, but I mean, I still see quite a few people who are maybe not that technology fluent that have issues with the video conferencing and stuff. You don't see that as much in the corporate world as you do in the small business world. So I think, gee, we've had a pretty good conversation here. I think there's a lot to unpack. You know, you guys are going to have to go back and rewind here a bit and, <laughs> and take some notes because there's a lot in here that can really help you out. There's a lot of theory and a lot of strategy in here that is proven to work and it can work for your business. But, gee, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Probably the best way is to get in touch with us through the website, kexina.com, K-E-X-I-N-O 
Com. You can pretty much send, you know, hello at kexino.com is a group email that many people in the team get. I certainly on that list as well, if that's easy. Otherwise, you can find me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on far, far too many social networks, to be honest. Or just Google me. <laughs> um, you'll, you'll, you'll find me. And you won't find anything bad said against me as either, which is also very important. But yeah, you know, reach out and I'll, I'm happy to have a conversation. You know, even if it doesn't result in anything, if I can help in any way, especially startups and small businesses, which is, you know, our sort of core competency, if you like, I'll be happy to help. Terry, we'll have your link in the show notes. That's usually below your podcast player, wherever you're listening to this right now. You can also get the show notes at hookseo.com slash podcast. And G, thanks again for being on the show. Thanks very much. It has been a pleasure. Absolute delight. This has been Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. For notes and a transcript of this episode, go to hookseo.com forward slash podcast. Join us next week as we dive into more tips and ideas to grow your business. Digital Marketing Masters is brought to you by Hook SEO Digital Marketing. Our show is produced by Matthew Rouse and Scott Burson. Mixed and edited by Silent Outburst Productions. I'm your announcer, Daniel D. Craig. We would love to hear your thoughts. Please leave us an honest review with your podcast provider. Your reviews help us help more business leaders just like you.